Well, good morning. It is a real privilege to be here. Uh, my name is Tim Harton, for those of you guys I haven't met. And uh, I work uh, with an organization called Young Life. And I'm a member here at City Church and have been uh, involved here since uh, City Church really started with Patrick. And it's been a real privilege for Nikki and I to be a part of this church. And it's a tremendous privilege to be here this morning and to share uh, God's word with you. Thank you, Jess, for reading. And uh, when Patrick asked me to preach, I said, sure. And then he said, uh, we'll be going through the Psalms of Ascent. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I like those ones, I think. I'm pretty sure I like those ones. They're good. Uh, and I said, okay, I didn't want to act as though I didn't know what those were. And so I said, sure. And, um, and so then I, I Googled it and I found out what the Psalms of Ascent were. And it's been, it's been really cool, actually, for the past couple of weeks to be going through these Psalms. And, uh, and so we'll talk about that more in a minute. But again, it's a real privilege to be here this morning. And uh, let me say a prayer for us before we uh, go into this. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and for the way that it is uh, unlike anything else in all of creation. It is living and active. Lord, your word says about itself that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates. It, it pierces our hearts, Lord. And I pray this morning that as we open your word and as we uh, sit and listen to what you have to say, uh, that our hearts would be transformed, that we would leave this place more uh, like your son Jesus because of having spent time looking at your word. So thank you for it, for the privilege it is to be here this morning. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, the, one, the couple of things that, that Patrick's been talking about with the Psalms of Ascent is that they are really earthy psalms. He keeps using that phrase, and I think that's absolutely true. They're psalms uh, and stories and pictures that give us an, an image of what life is all about. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And our psalm this morning is no different. It really illustrates and is a picture of, I think, the life of faith in the people of God from long ago. But I think it actually gives us a great picture of what it means to be a a part of the people of God and live a life of faith today. And there's ups and there's downs and there's good and there's bad and there's ugly. And uh, I just got back this week from a training, our assignment team training, uh, up at Lake Champion, one of Young Life's properties. And one of the things I love about our, our summer assignments, so in Young Life, if you're on staff, a lot of times in the summer you'll go work at one of our camps for a month. And right there in that month, you, you have more good and more bad and more ugly than you could, you could even think about for, for years and years to come. But one of the, my favorite things is when we all get together for our training for the upcoming summer, and we sort of sit around and tell some stories about things that have happened at camp in the past. And uh, I was reminded this week of a story about the good, the bad, and the ugly of life where uh, a couple of years ago, Nikki and I were uh, working at Rockbridge, one of Young Life's camps in Virginia, and a group of students had come from uh, Capernaum. And Capernaum is Young Life's ministry to kids with disabilities. And Kate, actually, who's our Capernaum director, is here this morning, and her friend Ty, who work um, with Capernaum in the area. And if you've never been a part of something like that, I'm telling you, it's, it's unbelievable. It's beautiful. It's incredible. And, and seeing kids with disabilities who have friends and, uh, and people and leaders who love them and will be willing to take them away for a week of camp and a camp that's just designed just for them, it's, it's unbelievable. And it was so fun. But my friend Philip and I were pretty nervous. Uh, I was part of the program team. And so the program team is the people who are sort of up front and doing some of the skits and, and leading the week and doing some of the humor and that kind of thing. And one of the things we had been told was, you know, we had had a couple weeks uh, of typical kids who had come through camp. And the lady who came in to sort of run our Capernaum week said, hey, when these students show up, whatever you tell them, they're going to believe. Uh, whatever you do from up front, even if it's totally obvious that it's not true, 
they're going to buy in with whatever you say. And we said, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll take that into consideration. And so uh, there was a meal that we were doing some program at, and I went up front, and I was the bad guy. My name was Hector Popolis, and I was an international ping pong champion. And um, some of you are wondering, do I have a real job? I think I do. I'm pretty sure. There are times when I wonder, I'm standing backstage with this ridiculous outfit on and goggles and a ping pong paddle thinking, what has my life become? But, um, but I, was doing, I was doing Hector and I came up front and Hector's sort of an angry fella. And, um, and he was angry that day and he was telling the kids, you know, the, the camp's going to be shut down. And we're going to turn this place into a ping pong training facility, which makes a lot of sense. But, um, but kids were devastated, unlike anything I'd ever seen. I mean, it was booze right off the bat, like right from the beginning, just boo, boo, boo. And so I'm like, okay, this lady was not kidding. They really believe this. So I, I make my way back through the crowd. And the next day, I go up front again as Hector. I try to tone it down a little bit, but they are angry. I mean, from the minute the song comes on to introduce me, they are, I mean, they are heated. They are not happy. And so I'm up there do my thing, tell them, hey, you guys got to go home, the camp's being shut down. No, no way. And so I make the mistake of leaving through the middle of the dining hall. And so I'm walking through the middle of the dining hall, uh, thinking everything's going to be okay. They're booing, but I- I'm okay, I'm pretty tough, I'm, you know. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see one of the students stand up. And I think, oh boy, this is not good for the home team, right? So he comes, and he has a, um, a piece of fruit. I think it was an apple, and he has a, it's, it's blurry. The memory is blurry because of what happens next. But he has an apple, I think, in his hand, and I'm thinking, okay, he's going to throw an apple at me. Well, I'm quick. I can, I can duck and dodge. But he doesn't throw the apple. He actually chases me down in the dining hall with the apple. And I'm so stunned that I'm frozen in my tracks. And he starts punching me in the head with the apple, right? In the, right in the ear hole, just boom, ringing my bell. And I am like... What in the world is happening? I think it's going to be okay. And I see some people standing up. I think it's his leaders. Sure enough, it's not his leaders. It's four of his friends who are also coming after me. So I dart into the kitchen, and literally I'm holding the door shut. And if I was wondering what my life had come to before I got out there, I'm really starting to think, what the heck is going on? I just got punched in the head with an apple, right? So the week goes on. We really tone it down a lot. When the end of the the, the resolution comes, spoiler alert, the camp did not get turned into a ping pong training facility. But we reconcile, you know, we hug on the stage, good guy and bad guy. The good guy who has now become, I mean, the bad guy who's now become good. The speaker's up there. We make sure everybody knows Hector is a good guy now, okay? Because I don't want to take my life in my own hands. And the kids are so happy. Thank you, Hector, for not turning the camp into a ping pong training facility. We go into the gym. And we're having a celebration, a dance, and it is, it is magical. It's really fun. And I'm, I'm telling you, you've never seen joy like this. The good, the bad, and then the ugly happens. Where uh, Hector is leading a conga line, just a celebration conga line. A couple hundred kids behind Hector, you know, and he's leading a conga line. And I make my way back to the, uh, a dark corner of the gym, moving forward. And uh, one of the students runs up, and he is elated. He's so excited, and he puts both hands in the air as if to give a double, double high five, Right? So I'm like, yeah, all right. I go for the double high five. And I don't know at that moment exactly what happened in that student's mind, whether he was just really tricky and crafty from the beginning or if he had a flashback or something happened. But all of a sudden, he went from really happy to this big scowl on his face. And my hands are in the air. And he reaches back and just sucker punches me right in the gut. And I crumble to the ground. And literally, I'm in the fetal position. I lost all, I mean, I almost lost consciousness. And I'm thinking, what in the world? And then the conga line just keeps going. And I have to just sort of limp to the front, and I like walk, I'm like, Philip, I gotta go. So, I mean, you talk about good and bad and ugly, there's all, I I mean, I know all of us, each one of us have stories like that, where life is just crazy, and there's good, and there's bad, and there's ugly, sometimes within five minutes of each other. 
And I think that's the same exact thing that people of God have been going through for a very, very long time. And we read in this psalm some really, really interesting things. And the first thing we see, one of the first things we see, is that the psalmist says, when the Lord brought us back, in order to be brought back somewhere, what has to have happened? You have to have been brought away from the thing that you were originally supposed to be doing. And the psalmist talks about being in captivity. And in this particular setting, the psalmist is talking about the captivity that's come to the people of God when they were in captivity to Babylon. And I wonder if we were living back then, if we would have thought, what in the world has happened? This, is, this has gone from good. We've been chosen by God. We are God's people, the nation of Israel, to really, really bad. Oh, no, what has happened? The people of God have been taken into captivity and really, really ugly. I, I, don't, I don't pretend to ima- be able to imagine what that would have been like to live in captivity like that. But it happened very quickly. And they were, I'm sure, wondering what in the world is going on. This is not the way that it was intended to be. The people of God should not live in captivity. And they must have wondered why. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all ask that same exact question. We wonder why. And for the people of God, we can look back, we can read the scriptures, and we can see there was an agreement that had been set up that God would be their God and they would be their people. And God had kept his end of the bargain. God, had, God has never left his end of the bargain, ever. In the history of his people, he's never, he's never fallen short on his promise. But the people of God certainly have. And we read over and over again in the Old Testament about how the people of God had worshipped idols. They had brought in unholy things, unholy people, unholy teachings into their community. And they had turned their back on the God who was supposed to have been the one who they found life in. And again, in the same way, you and I find ourselves in almost the exact same position We don't find ourselves in the exact same position of captivity that we are an overtaken nation. But even in a more discouraging way, in a more despairing way, Paul says in the New Testament that we are, we have become slaves to our own sin. That God has set up a way that we were supposed to live in community with him and that we've turned our back on him. We've brought in unholy things and unholy people and unholy teachings and unholy things into our own life that have caused there to be this disconnect from God. And we're found in captivity. And God still desires to maintain a relationship with us. Thank God that he's the kind of God who still desires to have his people. Thank God that he loves us enough that he won't leave us there without hope. The psalmist says that he brought back the captives to Zion. Not that the captives set themselves free. Not that they figured out how to get it right. Not that they all of a sudden stopped doing enough wrong things and started doing enough right things to earn God's favor again. But that God, in his mercy, drew them back. It was the Lord who did this great thing. And the same is true for you and for me. It was not because of any great thing that we had done. Titus 3.5 says it very plainly. It was not because of any righteous thing that you and I had done that God drew us back to himself. But it was his great mercy. And Patrick talked last week so uh, beautifully about God's mercy and the mercy of God. And thank God that he's a God like that. That he's a God who has mercy on his people. Thank God that he loves us enough to send his very own son. And then as John 1.12 says, that to anybody who receives him and to those who believe in his name, he gives us the right to become again the children of God. And I wonder this morning uh, if, if any uh, of us here in this room, as we read this psalm and we identify with certain parts of it, I wonder if that's where it stops for us. I wonder if, if where it stops is that you find yourself in captivity because I don't think there's a person in this room who would disagree with that part of this, of, of this illustration. That things are certainly not the way they were meant to be. 
I wonder if that's where it stops. And I wonder if you would consider, as we continue to talk about what it means to be set free by God, I wonder if you would consider what that might look like this morning. And I wonder if you would consider what it would mean to have joy again and to be reconnected to the God who so deeply loves you. Because the people of God, it says so clearly, experience freedom. They experience freedom that nothing could ever compare to. As the song uh, stated earlier, we trade our sorrows, our shame, we lay them down for the joy that comes from the Lord. I was trying to think of an illustration of, of this freedom, this feeling, this experience of being free. And the best one I could come up with, how many people in the room went away to college, went away somewhere and went to college, away from home? A, a lot of us. I think if you didn't, if you didn't go to college or if you didn't go away, you could still understand this experience that I remember very distinctly, it happened four times and four times only for me. The end of the first semester, and you finish the last exam and you turn it in, and there is an unparalleled joy and freedom that there are a couple of weeks where there is nothing to do. It's an, I mean, as I'm talking about it, I'm sure some of you guys are like, yeah, that was awesome. I miss that. I miss having four weeks of nothing to do except for watch SportsCenter over and over and over and memorize what clip is coming next. And it is an unparalleled, but that feeling, that experience of being free, there, even if you wanted to get ahead, even if you wanted to move forward, there's nothing else you can do. We're free. I think that's a great illustration of what the psalmist is saying and what Paul talks about over and over again about being set free from the law of sin and death, that the punishment that was to be paid for our sin, which we fully deserved, has been poured out on his son on the cross. We're about to sing that song at the end of our service today uh, in Christ alone. And it says, when on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. When on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We've been set free, declared free, and we no longer, as God's people, have to live in captivity. The psalmist says something very interesting happens when that freedom hits. It causes such joy and elation that it's as if they were woken up from a bad dream. Look at verse 1. It says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Wake me up. Somebody pinch me. Is this real? Is this freedom that God offers that's so vastly different from the captivity we're experiencing? Is this even real? Could it be? Could this really be that this freedom actually exists? I wonder if, uh, if you remember what it was like to have met God for the very first time. I certainly do. I know some people probably in the room um, never remember a time in their life when they didn't know God. I certainly do. There's others of us in the room who are like me who you distinctly remember what it was like to live apart from God. And I distinctly remember what it was like to begin a relationship with him. A whole new way of life opened up to me a whole new relationship with God, I was on top of the world. Church became an incredibly sweet place. And community and with the people of God became incredibly important. And the Bible became alive to me. I remember uh, not too long after I had made this decision to follow Christ, I went on a road trip with my family to New York. And I brought my Bible, which my young life leader had bought for me a few weeks earlier. And I read the whole New Testament. I was so excited. I read the whole New Testament. And I got to Romans. And Romans was awesome. Romans really clicked for me. I think it's a little bit of how my brain works, maybe, or, or whatever. Certain books of the Bible, I think, appeal to certain people, but Romans was phenomenal. So I got home, and I called my young life leader, who had been to seminary and was, you know, was a, a, a pastor in a church, and he, I said, hey, Will, I read the New Testament. He was like, really? I said, yeah. 
he said, I said, uh, hey, you've got to check this thing out. There's this book called Romans, and it is awesome. Like, you've got to read this thing. Have you read that? And he said, yeah, I've read, I've read the book of Romans, Tim. But it was phenomenal. A whole new way of life. I, I, I mean, I can almost go back there in my mind. When I began this relationship with God, and there was such joy, and there was such elation, and I became more and more of who God actually created me to be. And something also happened in me, which the psalmist talks about. I began to laugh. And laughter, I I don't know that we laugh that much these days. I'll be honest. I don't know that as a culture, we laugh. What we do laugh at sometimes is not really worth laughing about. It's really more tragic than it is funny. And what we do more often than not uh, as our culture is we sort of scoff. But I think as the people of God, you guys, we can laugh. We, our mouths can be filled with laughter. Laughter is a pretty interesting thing. It distinguishes us from other animals. I don't know any other animal except for maybe a physiological, like being tickled, who, who maybe like a, a, a monkey laughs when it gets tickled. But we don't have to be tickled to laugh. We can laugh about things we just think about. We can laugh about a kid chasing me down with a happy apple and punching me in the ear. That's funny. Like, it's okay to laugh. There are things that are okay to laugh about. And something happens to us. Our walls are broken down. We are more and more of who we, cre- we are created to be. I think there's going to be a lot of laughter when we get to heaven. The other side of eternity is going to be filled, I think, with joy and laughter. Uh, this, a friend of Nicky and I's who writes music named Drew Holcomb says it this way in the beginning of one of his songs. He says, laughter is the only thing that will keep you sane when the world is crying more and more every day. So we've seen that there's this unnatural and awful captivity that the people of God have been taken captive by sin. We've seen that there's a God who loves us and desires to reconcile that relationship and give us joy. And we think and talk and, and remember about the first time when we entered into that relationship or the time when we can think we were on the mountaintop and it was so good. And yet, and yet, life happens. Right? Life happens. We are so on top of the world where our mouth is filled with laughter. We are praising God and then we get a flat tire. Or a friend says something that really hurts our feelings. Or winter seems to never, ever go away. Somebody said winter, uh, this is just a free little anecdote, <clears throat> that winter's a little bit like Justin Bieber, in that at the beginning it was kind of cute and fun and exciting, and now it's really annoying, and it should just go back to Canada where it belongs, okay? That's, that's what winter's been like. We can cut that out of the podcast if you want, Patrick, I'm sorry. But we, we're on top of the world, and things are great, and we're later, our mouth is filled with laughter, and then we make a huge mistake. We blow it in some area of our life, and we begin to wonder... Gosh, is this thing really true? Or we find out that someone we love is sick or dying. And on and on and on. And our mouths aren't so filled with laughter. You know, there was a time not too long ago, just about a year ago, when I'm not kidding, I'm not saying this as a hyperbole, I wasn't sure if I'd ever laugh again. In the beginning of March last year, uh, my dad called and said that he had found out he was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. And it caught us as a family way off guard. My dad, who was 59 at the time, in great health, great shape, all of a sudden the game was changed. And and it was uh, way more tears than it was laughter. And 68 days later, after my dad had gotten called out of the blue with this diagnosis, he passed away. And, And that is, for me, the most difficult thing we've ever gone through as a family, for Nikki and I. We've, it's, it was incredible. And on top of that, some incredibly hard things happened in the midst of it. And I wondered, 
If I would ever laugh again, life had smacked me in the face. In a room like this, I know for a fact that there's some people who are going through some situations either as devastating, maybe more devastating, or have gone through. And the old adage is that if, if, if you're not going through something right now that's just ripping your guts out, then it probably means you're just coming out of that, like Nikki and I are maybe, or unfortunately maybe we're headed into something like that. Because life is full of good and bad and ugly, even for the people of God. And all kinds of things happen that threaten to rob us of the joy and the freedom that are now our right in Christ. Big things, small things, things we have no control over, and if we're honest, things that are even our own fault. But the psalmist pleads with the Lord, restore our fortunes. He talks about going out and weeping and sowing in tears. Theologians call this tension, as Patrick has said a number of times I know in his sermons, this tension of the already and the not yet. Already things are true, and yet not yet are they fully true. Already our freedom and our joy has been purchased by Christ on the cross. And yet not yet has he come back in glory to restore those things fully. Um, I honestly thought maybe I would never laugh again when my dad got sick. And there was nothing but tears for a very long time. I knew Jesus loved me. I knew the gospel was real. I knew he was there. I knew he was not punishing me. I knew and I knew. And yet I cried and I cried. And we tried, Nikki and I, not even knowing what these psalms were. They were the psalms of ascent. We didn't even know that. We tried to pray these psalms. And what we were doing was trying the best we could to sow our tears. And I know that if you're anything like me, you wonder so many times when there are tears, is this doing any good? Is there anything that good that could possibly come out of this? And there were a few days where uh, my dad was, was going downhill so, so rapidly that we, I mean, I honestly thought, how in the world could we ever have joy again? And then something happened. And God began to, began to spring little things up, almost like blades of grass coming out of the dead, dead ground that had been laying in the winter all, all winter long. And some things happened, and we began to laugh a little bit. We actually wrote down a few things. My dad had an incredible sense of humor. And part of the way that God chose to be gracious to us in his last days was to let my dad be funny. And it was just okay to laugh. I remember uh, when we first, my dad was first in the hospital, and they were moving him from room to room. And every nurse loved him because he was a super great patient. He wasn't talking very much. Um, he had sort of gone into almost a semi-coma. And he wasn't talking a whole lot. And he had been in this one room for a few days, and they were moving him to another room. And the nurses came in, and they just said, you know, Mr. Harden, thank you for being a great patient. We're going to miss you. And on and on, my dad just laid there quietly and didn't say anything. And then when they left, he popped up, and he just said, I hate when they get attached like that. <laughs> and we just sort of looked at each other and just started dying laughing. And it was as if it, God was saying, it's okay. It's okay to laugh. And it's also okay to cry. And it's okay that sometimes there's more of one than the other. And as we sowed our tears, we were reaping and are reaping joy. And as, we, as I think now about my dad being with Jesus and being with the Lord and being on the other side of eternity, there is actually joy. And I can laugh and I can be excited for what's coming. Uh, the Bible says in almost an affront, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think only with God, only as the people of God, is such an idea possible. Ultimately, this, this psalm shows us a picture of what life with God is supposed to be like. That we're to be brought back to Zion, where the joy comes from is being back in the presence of God.
that our mouths are to be filled with laughter, that eventually, someday, everyone, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all of us will say, the Lord has done great things for us. I have a, a friend of a friend who's also a musician named Justin Rosalino, and he writes this song that I think is beautiful, and I'll end with this. Uh, He tells a story in this song about a people group who had been enslaved. They had been taken into captivity. And there was a law that was passed that set them free. A declaration by the government that said, you are free. But it didn't take place right away. There was a waiting period. And this song is written as if the people were singing it the night before their freedom is coming. And isn't that exactly where we find ourselves? Guys, is that there has been a declaration that we are made free and yet... We're waiting for that deeper freedom. We're waiting for the law to be finally enacted and us to fully experience the joy that God has set before us. And on the night before, he says this, Tonight, I'm going to scale the highest mountain. And when I get there, I'll climb the tallest tree. And when I get there, I'll raise my hands toward heaven until I feel the light of morning touch my fingertips and set me free. Come, sweet day, and free me with your ray. For you alone I wait. Come, sweet day, 